<laughs> a history of comedy. It's Another homage in the archive. A history of comedy. It's several objects. A history of comedy. Come and have a rummage in the archive. Hello and welcome to A History of Comedy and Several Objects, a podcast from the University of Kent about the British stand-up comedy archive, which exists to preserve all kinds of interesting material relating to the art and craft of stand-up comedy. Uh, I'm Oliver Double. And this is my colleague, Elspeth Miller. And we are very much the Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz of comedy archiving. <laughs> Which one am I? Uh, I think you're probably Lucy, because okay. she's the big star. Okay, so I'm, I'm, just, uh, I'm just the husband and co-star, really. No, that's weird. We're not... So, yeah, we, we're very lucky this episode to have a special guest, uh, who is Angela Barnes. Ah, oh, thank you. That's a nice thing to say. You're lucky. I feel very lucky to be here, Ollie. And um, just before we kind of get into the, the main bit of the episode, uh, where we get to the sort of format that we do, um, you've, you've just finished recording a series of Newsjack. Yes, I have on Radio 4 Extra. So tell us about that. That What kind of a programme is that? It, it's an exciting programme because it's um, what they call an open submission programme. So what that means is it's the only programme in radio comedy where anyone can submit material. So, you know, if you're the sort of person who sits at home listening to the radio going, oh, I could do that, then that's the show you should be writing for. They Every uh, week during the transmission of the series... You can send in sketches and one-liners about the news. We get about 700 submissions uh, for each of those things. So 700 sketches, 700 one-liners every week. Wow. So it's really exciting because it's all these... I mean, a logistical nightmare. Luckily, I'm not the person who has to sit and, and read through them all and decide. I see them at the point where they've been through a couple of filters. Um, but, yeah, it's an exciting show to work on. And when you listen to the credits at the end, the, yeah. the list of writers is enormous. So big. I mean, so we record... The list of, of so the, the credits are recorded before the show's recorded because um, obviously when we actually record the show there'll be some material that doesn't make it to the final edit and so the final credits we don't know until the edit's done so before the audience come in I'll stand on the mic and just read out probably about fifty names and it's trying to uh, the ones uh, you know trying to make sure I pronounce them right you know we, we've had sort of all sorts of different nationalities represented you're like I hope I'm not being really offensive here and I'm just sort of having a bash at, at these names but it's so great that you know people get so excited you forget when you're you know it's not that long I've been working in comedy and you very quickly forget that thrill of hearing your name on the radio on TV it's a really big but it's such an important part of the show to people to have their credit and and I mean, what's interesting is that uh, you, you've not well when did you start in comedy I started in comedy so I did a stand-up comedy course in 2009 and then I bottled it for about six months I uh, kept thinking I'm, I'm going to go out there on the open mic circuit and do it I think I did my first gigs at the very beginning of 2010 so seven years ago and, and in comedy terms, in, in contemporary comedy, that's, that's quite a short space of time to be hosting 
um, a, a topical, a weekly topical news programme. Yeah, I mean, what I say to people is when I did my first open spot, I was 33, so I had to get a move on. <laughs> so I, I'm 40 now, you know, so um, yeah, that, that was my impetus, I think, to, to get my head down and get cracking once I decided I wanted to do it. But to look at it a different way, you've done really well. Thank you. Well, you can say that, I can't. <laughs> Okay, so um, one of the reasons we wanted you to come on particularly on, on the podcast is because you were the first comedian to come and look at material in the archive. Was I the first one? It, you I were. Had, oh, I had, that's wonderful. How exciting. So, so do, you want to, do, do you remember what happened, how that was set I up? Do. I do. I can tell the story yeah. about how that happened. Um, so I am a huge fan of Linda Smith. Um, and she, I mean, to go right back, one of the reasons I'm a huge fan of hers is I'm a big radio comedy nerd, right? And I have been my whole life. My, I listened to it with my dad, and I grew up listening to Round the Hall and Navy Lark, all of those things. And um, and the one thing that we loved was was the news quiz, and and to this day I love it. And um, the hearing Linda Smith on the news quiz was the first time having listened to all the stuff that's much older than me was the first time I heard someone with a voice that was like mine on Radio 4. You know, it wasn't a public schoolboy voice, it wasn't a middle-class male, it wasn't a posh woman who'd been brought in as a... You know, it wasn't an actress. It was just a funny woman who was born half an hour away from where I was born, in Kent. And suddenly it was like, oh, there's an opportunity for people like me to to do this. Um, At that point, when I first was listening to Linda, and and I used to love her and get so excited when she was on QI or Have I Got News For You, any of those things, so excited to see her. But it still hadn't occurred to me at that point that I myself could actually do it. And it wasn't until I came to to start doing stand-up comedy, it was Linda was always there in my head. I loved the things that she did. I loved the way that she um, engaged with people. I loved the fact that... She came across like your mate, but my God, you didn't want to mess with her. You know, there was a spike there. There was, um, and, and so clever, and so, but so warm, and at no point ever feeling like somebody's trying to prove to you how clever they are, which, you know, you can get that a lot from people. <laughs> so I was a huge fan of hers. And then, so every time, when things started to happen for me in comedy, when I, I won the BBC New Comedy Award, and I started to get a little bit of attention... And then I would do interviews with sort of comedy websites or newspapers or whatever. And they'd always ask you who your biggest influence is. And I would always say Linda, um, just because that's the truth. And then one day I was working on a TV show called Stand Up for the Week. And I was, it was the day of the record and I was sat in the dressing room. And, um, and I had a phone call um, and I didn't recognise the number. I let it go to voicemail. And... When I listened to the message, it was Warren Lakin. Now, Warren Lakin is, uh, or was, Linda's partner. Um, For those that don't know, Linda sadly passed away in 2006, so I never got to meet or work with Linda, sadly. But Warren had, um, he'd had a conversation with Mark Thomas, who I had worked with uh, prior to that, and Mark had told Warren, oh, there's this new comic about, and she really, really loves Linda. And Warren had then sort of Googled me and seen these interviews that I'd done where I'd talked about Linda, and he felt that he wanted to say thank you, like, for sort of talking about her, really. Um, and, and I was so blown away that I just had this voicemail from... And I knew who Warren was because I'd read his book. He'd written a book about Linda and I'd read it. I knew exactly who he was. And so I phoned him straight back, and we were on the phone for a good half an hour. And during that conversation where we talked about, you know, Linda and... And, uh, and Warren had obviously looked at what I was doing as well and he you know, said that he liked the stuff I was doing. And two things he invited me to do in that conversation. One, 
uh, was to perform at Loving Linda, which is the annual a varian cancer benefit that they do in Linda's memory, which I was just blown away to be asked to do that. And the other thing was to come here to Kent University and look at Linda's archive. And I just, I was speechless. I was like, what, what do you mean? You know, and he said, well, when I was writing the book, we accumulated all of this stuff. It's, you know, her notebooks, posters, recordings, all these things to do with Linda's career. And he said, I've donated them all to Kent University. And if you like, I'll take you down there and we can have a look at it. And I just, what a privilege, you know. I never got to meet Linda or work with her, and I'll forever be sad that I never got to meet her, but talk about the next best thing, you know. And, and actually, more intimate in many ways, to look at notes that someone's made or, you know. Well, that's brilliant, because what we thought for today's episode that we would do is we'd get a load of stuff out from the Linda Smith collection. For yeah. th- and then you can choose what the object is for today's episode, because every mm. episode is built around one object from the archive. Sure. So, should we just start having a look at some this stuff? It's so exciting already. I've just sort of... I've been trying not to look at it too much, because I know you <laughs> wanted me to look at it on the recording, but the first thing that caught my eye... Well, there's several of them. Uh, a Linda set list. Now, as a comic, you know, you, you write down your... I impulsively write down my set list, even if I know exactly what I'm going to do before every gig. Just like, right, well, start with that, start with that. My phone is, you know, the notes section of my phone is just set list after set list. And they're all pretty much the same for a few weeks, you know. And I just glanced at one of Linda's. Um, so I've got one here, which is from July 2000, a 35-minute set that she was doing in Roehampton. And the way that she's laid it out is, I guess it's the way most comics do, but just key words from your set to remind you. And what I love about these is you think, if anyone found this, <laughs> they're the ramblings of a mad person. <laughs> because it's just these words that, unless you know what, what they're about, just mean nothing. You know, you've got, oh, I'll just read a line from Linda's Hague slash Rural Insane slash Countryside Alliance slash Hyde Park slash Crime. You know, you just go, well, what does she do with that stuff? And then... Yeah, these are just beautiful. We've talked before on the podcast about how uh, stand-up is so very different from theatre, where there's a script that... In theatre, you know, you can publish the script and somebody else can put that on. Yeah. But if you publish that, nobody could do that It's nothing to anybody else. It's like a puzzle. You know, you've got... Only Linda can fill in the gaps, and possibly Warren, because he was always there, um, you know, can fill in the gaps between these... Things and I often think if I lose my phone and anyone looked at the notes section of my phone, they'd just think it was a mad person. Have you ever done a thing where you've looked back over an old set list and not been able to remember what one of the things was? That's it's weird. That's starting to happen now. So because you think that'll never happen, you'll never forget material. But when you get to a point where you build a certain amount, and I do, oh, I just look back and go, oh, that was a really good joke. I'd completely forgotten I ever did it, or or that bit never really worked, and I wonder that didn't stay in very long. (laughs) And I I recently found, actually, the set list um, from the New Comedy Awards, and I'd completely forgotten what I'd actually done in the final of that competition, and because it was so early on, I looked at it just cringed with, oh my God, how did I win? (laughs) That stuff, jeez. And so that's the other thing with with set lists, and sort of having them lying around. They're a nice little thing to sort of... uh, trick your memory, you know, or trigger your memory and just look back at what you used to do. And what's quite quite nice about these these ones is that this is a handwritten one. Just lovely. And you can... I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting to look at because you can see that this is a working document because loads of things are scribbled out. Yeah. And then um, other things, like, written in by the side and things. You just... I like to wonder what... what she, so this is... This I love because this is obviously from a new material or she's trying some stuff out here. So she's got her, her list of um, topics that she's going to talk about, and there's crosses or ticks by them. 
and bits underlined and you're like and that's what I do it's like you mark yourself as you go through you know a new material night when you can take notes on stage and and you have your own little codes you know and uh, Sarah Millican does uh, I love the way she does it she she'll say to the audience um, I'm going to mark this as I go along sometimes I'll be right sometimes I'll be wrong she's like sometimes you'll be wrong <laughs> to the audience, which I think is just a lovely way of um, but again I mean somebody who didn't who'd never worked in stand-up might find this strange because I think that people some people still imagine that it's something that you just go out there and say what you, what's on your mind and it's funny yeah. and that there isn't a process behind it but that rigorous process of trying things with an audience testing them out Dumping yeah. them if they don't work. I mean, you 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 have a rule about if you've got. I a have a gag. rule of three generally. I'll give something three outings before I. Sometimes they got a lot more than three. If I'm really, you know, sometimes you get really married to a bit, and it's you have to kill your babies eventually. But sometimes you're like, well, I'll just give it another go, and then you're like, it hasn't worked ten times. You've got to. <laughs> yeah. But but usually I wouldn't try it fewer than three times before. You ditch it. Before you ditch it. Because you just don't know, you might have... And I always record when I do new material. So you can tell sometimes you might have messed up the setup, or or you might just need to change one word and it completely changes the dynamic of a joke. I think people often don't realise how sensitive a joke is in terms of just switching a tense or, a, a you know, one phrase or one word or one... You know, those little things make all the difference to it working. We have um, um, audio cassettes, don't we, of, of Linda that match with some of the set lists Amazing. where she was doing a run trying out new material. And when we've listened to those, it's quite interesting, isn't it? It's really illuminating, yeah. Maybe we'll, we'll listen to one later. Or you could listen yeah. to the episode. Oh, amazing, <laughs> But yeah. it's just as you were kind of reading out that set list. Yeah. It's very, I think the one that we listen to on the podcast, I think it's like art, how long. And that's just, you know, three words, but then Linda will make it into a, a two-minute. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like it's yeah, it's like sort of two, two minutes or something. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the key words there are art, how long, yeah. but it's, it's a two-minute bit. Yeah, you just need, tri- with the set list, you just need those triggers to, yeah. you know, get you, you go, oh, I know what that bit is. But And it's funny the words that you pick out from it as well. You don't, you don't always write down... I'm interested in what words people pick out for their set list, so I won't necessarily put the punchline in. Yeah. You know, and there might be a word that triggers a routine of mine that isn't even in the routine, but I know that's about that. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's funny how because it's just about they are. you remembering it. Absolutely, that's all they're for. They're not really, you know, these aren't for anyone else. Yeah. To look, you feel almost a bit naughty looking at this <laughs> stuff. Do you know what I mean? This is sort of a because my my comedy notebook. So I'm still a bit old school. I write things longhand. Yes. So I just feel that's how I've been you know but I know that there was some research done of somebody did a survey of I think 31 comedians in I think the UK and America Mm. and most comedians expressed a preference for handwriting I think it's because well for me I can write quicker than I can type I think so as I'm thinking of things I can get it down quicker and also I just that's how when I was at school you know because I'm 40 we didn't yeah. use word processors and yeah. you know stuff. So I'm used to like writing essays freehand and all of that stuff. So it just feels natural to me. But I will then input stuff. In. So I use a notes um, program called Evernote just simply because you know sometimes you'll think you're like I've written something about this before and now I've got forty notebooks to look through. You know whereas if I can just put it in a search of my notes online and then it comes up with the stuff yeah. I've thought of before. So it's more practical that way. But initially it's always handwritten first and, and a huge part of it isn't it is, is to prevent the idea from disappearing before you can try it with an audience yeah because these are post-it notes and presumably that's exactly what happened here that yeah she had wonderful this, do you have a look these are great look at this 
That's what I was going to touch on, because we've kind of got every example of set list here in that we've got a type set list and we've got sticky notepads yeah. and we've got bits pulled out of, of notebooks as well. Um, and I just wondered, yeah, do you think that Sushi started with, with talking to a comedian? Because I've I, no experience of writing comedy. I think... The, so I've got in my hand here, what, about 15 post-it notes held together with a paperclip. And I wouldn't be surprised if these were her trying to figure out a running order for a show. Because once you've got... So you tend to try out material in small bursts. You do 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there. But eventually, that's got to become an hour-long show. And what I would do is write each routine on a post-it note. And then you move them around and you try and work out the order. And that looks to me like what she's done here. Because it's all very specific... Routine. So she's got, um, uh, well, again, I mean, we won't know what this means, but she's got the word blows underlined, and then it says Martina, uh, I can't, bless her, I can't read her handwriting, not converted, trendy PM. Now, I'm sure, <laughs> I mean, it's like some weird word association game, it's lovely. And then the next line just says gladiators and rugby. Uh, so the next page, and then the next page says Domestos, Erith, which is where she's from, dogs, mum, jeans... So it all obviously meant something to her. And I, I think the initial ideas, well, for me, like I, again, now we do have mobile phones in our pocket all the time, so you've always got... I can always... My, whenever I think of something, I jot it down on the phone, unless I'm somewhere I haven't got my phone with me. Um, my other place where ideas always come to me is in the shower, which sounds weird, and I got used to get so frustrated because... I'd be in the shower and I'd have an idea and then I'd forget it by the time I got out of the shower. So what I've actually done, I've bought soap crayons <laughs> and they're in my shower. So if I think of something when I'm in there, I'll just write myself a note on the tiles to go and write it down before I forget it. We, in the first episode of this podcast, we had a quote from this book, uh, Documentation, Disappearance and the Representation of Live Performance by Matthew Reason. And he says uh, that the ephemerality of live performance means that it must be consciously documented if it's not to disappear, with the primary preoccupation not the creation of new art, but ensuring the documentation of existing art. But I completely, that rings false with stand-up. Yeah. It seems to me that your soap crayons are there because you're worried it's going to disappear, not because it exists already, but because you want it to exist in the future, and if you don't yeah. write it down, you won't remember it. I think it. at that point, it's not stand-up. At that point, it's an idea that may become stand-up. Um, so, you know, when I'm writing down notes, I mean, I could get my phone now and read out the notes section, it'd be ramblings of a mad woman. But um, when you do that, they just trigger words often or, or somebody will have said something, you're like, that's a great turn of phrase, I'm going to write that down. Or those little triggers. And then what I'll do with those notes is sit down and try and turn them into stand-up. And that's the process, process whereby it becomes stand-up. But I don't think it actually is stand-up till you've performed it in front of an audience. So that documentation, I mean, it might seem weird calling uh, post-it notes documentation, yeah. but that is essentially what they are. Yeah, It absolutely. exists precisely for the creation of future art. Yeah, well, this, I mean, it, you know, I've got in my hand, like I say, these tiny little post-it notes with a one paperclip holding them together. But that's probably a, a tour show in my hands there and that might be all that exists written down of that tour show there might be a recording of it of Linda performing it there may not be you know because not all and also on one tour one performance could be very different to another so you might have a recording of a performance on a tour that won't necessarily be the same show that someone the next day or the next month or whatever has heard on a different venue so in terms of actually documenting a, a stand-up tour this this is probably you know, the only place it's written down is in these little post-it notes in my hand, which is incredible, really, when yeah. you think of what that 
means. Yeah. Um, it's quite abstract, isn't it? Because, yeah. Because, you know, you've got these few scraps of paper and then you've got... Um, an hour and a half of lived experience, yeah. which is seeing the show or performing the show, depending on which exactly. way. Exactly. And like you say, you know, for a theatre script, you can hand that script to somebody else and they can perform it. I could hand this little pile of post-it notes to someone and it wouldn't mean a thing, you know, and they wouldn't be able to do the show that Linda did, um, which I think that's just really exciting. That's really... Because it means it's Linda's and it doesn't belong to anyone else. Yeah. And you can't plagiarise it. You can't, you know, because it's, it's so... Um, and I know some stand-ups do script their stuff. I know some stand-ups do write out their whole shows and scripts. And, of course, if you get to the point where you're then going to put it on the radio or whatever, then you have to, mm. um, because if things are televised or on the radio or, indeed, recorded for a DVD, they probably would have to for, for compliance and the, you know, yeah. to, so the lawyers can check what you're going to say and all of that stuff. Um, but this, for a live stand-up show, just being on a pile of post-it notes, I think that's absolutely lovely and handwritten. And just it makes it more personal. The fact it's handwritten. It... Absolutely. Like I say, I feel a little bit intrusive. I feel yes. a little bit like the, I wasn't supposed to look at these ever. Yeah. You know, Linda didn't write this. Going, I hope one day in the future, Angela Barnes will sit down and have a nose at what my I was scribbling <laughs> on these post-it notes. And there's part of me in my head going, Oh my God, is one day somebody going to be? I need to tidy up those notebooks. <laughs> Someone's going to be looking through those. What will they think of me? Well, we do. These are from two thousand. Right. Two thousand. This kind of folder. But we do have a pile. We've got five folders worth of undated material that we couldn't, wow. we couldn't figure out which so year it's from. Over to you. Yeah, and I'm, try, some, I'm really worried about mixing things up here. That's, that's right, the second um, one to that one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, one, from that one. one of the things we've come across in this podcast is uh, Elspeth's archivist guilt, like not doing <laughs> things right in the way that you have to handle the material <laughs> oh. itself. Wow. So what have we? This is like like Christmas. I'm just opening these <laughs> treasure trains of. I'm sorry, Linda. I hope you don't mind that I'm looking through your stuff. But it is. I'm sure such with some time we could date a lot of it because I mean, from looking through it again today, I haven't looked at it for a few years. But I do recognise some of the. I just, I just the, the headlines that she. Poirot moment then. Just by looking at that, going, well, this post-it note says 0171 on it, so right. on the phone number. So I think you'll find that is a 1990s London dialing code. Indeed. <laughs> Although she could, have, she could have just had the post-it notes for a really long time. So, <laughs> <laughs> so wow, so there's more post-it notes. Look at this. Now, you see this notebook, because I've got notebooks in a similar condition to this. The, the, well, do you want to describe the condition? So the condition of this notebook, the front and back of it are long gone, <laughs> and it's all curled up at the edges. And what I love about this is it never got thrown away. Yeah. And this is, you know, I have boxes of notebooks, and I, I don't know why I can't throw them away. They're in a state... Am I ever going to look... I've put most of it, you know, on my laptop anyway, so I don't need to. But there's something about, what if I put it out in the world and someone finds it and it has all my... You know, and it's torn and it's ink-stained and it's just wonderful. And there's just little... Now, here we are. Look, look at that first page, ripped page, but the top of it says Middle East. I mean, goodness me. So it starts with a, a note about Saddam Hussein. So either while he was still alive or while... This is incredible. Again, they're just notes that... Oh, Labour Party, hello. <laughs> Labour Party underline next phrase, changing the world. Yeah, oh, Linda. <laughs> <laughs> Election Hezbollah, weird family. <laughs> the connection is where you just jump to, you go from Hezbollah to weird family. Go, what was that connection in her head? I, I just, this is such a privilege. And so... Wonderful. A different pen there. Different pen. Tip. 
What, one, thing I w- one thing I will say that is different, certainly, um, is Linda seems to write always in black ink. Oh, there's a few blue, but I use every colour under the... I'm a real addict of, of coloured pens, so these look quite sort of... Uh, Do the different colours have different meanings when you use different colours? No, and people assume they do, but they don't. I just get bored and change colour halfway through (laughs) a thing. It drives my my boyfriend and I do cryptic crosswords together, and it drives him nuts because I'll halfway through a crossword just start doing it in a different (laughs) colour. Can't he can't bear it? I do it just to wind him up now, but. um, Goodness me. I've just noticed there's no doodles in this, which is. Oh, yeah, Linda Uh, did a lot of doodles. Yeah, this is. I wonder what this. Because it's not. It doesn't seem that ordered, this notebook. But then again, you know, I have notebooks where I started doing one thing in it and it's become something else. Mm. And then sometimes there's a notebook just on my desk that I just scribble notes mm. on and don't really. Well, mean from anything. this time, the kind of. T- she stopped doing stand up as much in the late 90s. Yeah. And was concentrating more on radio. Yeah. And then the 2001 set list that we were looking at before, that's when she started touring again. Yeah. So it could be we've got a lot of notebooks and notes for kind of. Perhaps she was doing for the news the quiz, news quiz and things. The yeah, well, so that, it could be that it's all mishmash. This together. actually looks like because thinking about it now, where it's got Middle East underlined, Labour Party underlined. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they are Christchurch underlined. That might be the time of the earthquake or something. Maybe I wonder if these are news quiz stories. Mm-hmm. Could be um, that she's then made notes on before going on the show. That would make sense because they're be- it's very topical stuff she's writing here. And you can see how non-linear the process of making comedy is because say take this page for example, it's mainly in um, felt tip and there's even a bit of spillage there as well for yeah. some drink or something. Uh, but then there's there's afterthoughts written on or amendments. Things are scribbled out in a different in, in a biro. She's obviously gone back to her notes and. And that's another thing you do, you know, you, with stand up, you're always going back to your notes, always. Yeah. You're never just writing something and never looking at it again. You're always going back, and then, you know, my thing is I'll put a little asterisk in the margin if I think it's got something, or, you know. But I, I would say different people write in different ways, but for me, you know, for every hundred pages I write in a notebook, I might get three jokes. You know, it's a lot of stream of consciousness and writing, and then you pick out the bits. It's a lot of going back over and reading all the rubbish that you've written but these do look now I'm looking at it I think they probably are news quiz and that's so weird as well because I do news quiz now you know which when I came to the archive before I don't think I had and I remember seeing um Linda's like because when you do news quiz they put a notebook on the table and you've got a pen there so if you think of something during the the uh, during the recording you can jot it down and they had some of Linda's, and there were doodles, and there were... And I was like, I do that in the recording now. You know, you just sort of don't even think about it, just doodling on the bit of paper while the recording's going on. But I never thought that I would be doing that show. Can I pick up on that? Because one of the things that I wanted to talk about in this episode is generations of comedians. Yeah. You know, because uh, we really want the archive to be something that comedians feel that they can come and use. Like, if any comedian out there wants to look up stuff on the catalogue, they can make an appointment to come in and look at it. That's amazing. Do you think that there's anything that could be gained as a comedian learning their craft from looking at how earlier comedians... Like, looking at this kind of material? Yeah, absolutely. I It's... Different people are different. Like I, I'm both fascinated by people's process and terrified by it. So there are numerous, um, you know, podcasts and things where people talk about their progress, uh, their process. And part of me, because I, I'm a comedy nerd for, first and foremost, that side of me loves it. And I could sit in this archive all day and look at how Linda structured the show, look at how she put things together, look at her notebooks, and 
But the other half of my brain, the, the comedian, is much more uh, anxious about things. And I worry that if I did too much of that, all that side of my brain would be going, well, you're doing it wrong. You know, and I think the one thing I've learned from talking to comics and talking to both comics in my generation, as it were, and older comics, is that there's no right or wrong way. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I do worry a little bit that people are so focused on the process without actually just, just getting on and doing it. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I sort of teach comedy. I've taught it at university for a number of years, and um, sometimes students want to be told how to do it, but yeah. there isn't a how to do it. No. There's only your way of how to do it. Exactly. And you can advise somebody if they get very script-bound, if somebody does do that. I don't see that so often, but I've had that before. I will try writing out bullet points and, and freewheeling it a bit more. Mm. Um, but, 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 you know, they have to come to that for themselves, ultimately, and they have to make that work for themselves. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, there isn't a fixed methodology. And no. Ultimately, you know, within the world of theatre and performance, there are certain sort of strands of that where process is really foregrounded and it's it's very important like if you're doing applied theatre or something you're working with mm. client groups in the community you know the way you work with them is as important if not more so than any the show products yeah but stand-up is all product really yeah. this only exists to allow you to do that hour or whatever yeah. it is on stage that you do like we said with those post-it notes this stuff here has no meaning without the performance at the end you know and and that's the bottom line and, and with comedy really with stand-up comedy you've got one job that is the bottom line they either laugh or they don't and it's so immediate and so you either in that moment it's a pass or a fail <laughs> you know there's no sort of if they don't laugh they don't laugh if they do they do I'm just going to observe something about what you just said it's pass or fail you're still at school <laughs> I am I am I've never left school <laughs> it's so true it's so true so but you're facing an audience of teachers <laughs> psychologically please, speaking please like me and pass me that's, that's interesting isn't it that I use yeah. that actually it's quite interesting but I know, I know the feeling that feeling of yeah. judgement from yeah. your audience again with, with straight theatre I don't think there's the I mean clearly you want to be thought of as a good actor or whatever it is but you but, won't necessarily know it in the moment yeah you won't know it till you read the reviews yeah or until you hear the hubbub in the bar afterwards or until you know you walk into the bar afterwards and either people come up and talk to you or they avoid you <laughs> that's when you know whether it went well or not you know whereas as a comic on a stage you know in that moment and that's one of the few art forms where you know in the moment whether you're winning or losing you know and they can renew their option every minute or absolutely whatever. oh yeah you can you can be winning and then lose horribly you know it's a real um and that's where the thing about the process as well is it kind of doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there and that's where I think if you get too hung up on so I and I'm the worst for this which is why I've stopped listening to certain podcasts and things like that because it makes me too anxious because my default setting is to think well I must be doing it wrong you know rather than go well I just do it differently to them and I think what um, works for one person won't you know so some comics they treat writing stand-up comedy like it's a job so they will get up at, in the morning at nine o'clock they'll start writing they'll stop for lunch and then they'll start again in the afternoon and then they finish at five and that's their writing day I, ca- I just can't do that and that doesn't mean that I'm in you know the end result might be the same but that's not how I work and I can only sit down and write if I'm feeling that I want to sit down and write. Otherwise, it's just me crying in a room at a blank bit of paper. And that's not helpful to anyone, you know. That's more so, performance art than stuff. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Maybe I should just start filming that and putting that out there by staring at a blank screen and pulling my hair out. Um, you know, so you just find the way that works for you. But, but it's so fascinating to see... How somebody else did it. How somebody else did it. You know, mm. as long as you don't get too... Hung up on Hung that. up on it, I think, mm. is the... 
important thing. So apart from the sort of set lists and things, have we got any other kind of material here, I suppose? Um, so we've also got some material from Mark Thomas, who you worked with. I have. Um, and I was having a look through the catalogue to see if there was anything relating to you. And there's um, a high-vis jacket with <laughs> a trainee shoplifter on the back. <laughs> which, so it's, from, it's part of the 100 Acts of Minor Descent, I understand. Yeah. Could you tell Shall us? Shall I explain? Yes, please. So, what happened? I had. Um, I'm trying to think if I'd actually met Mark before. I, I did. I think I had met him. Yeah, no, I must have done. And um, I got this text message one day from Tian and Duyeb, um that just said, "Are you free tomorrow? Do you want to come and do one of Mark's hundred acts of minor descent?" Now, it's when Mark was doing this show that he then toured. But this is the process leading up to the tour, and he was doing these, what he called, acts of minor descent. Now, I grew up, you know, obsessed with comedy in the 90s and watching Mark Thomas' comedy product on Channel 4. And so when you get a text message that says, do you want to... Of course I do. <laughs> of course I want to do one of Mark Thomas's 100 acts of minor descent. This is incredible. So uh, I just got this thing. Can you um, come to... I can't remember where we met outside of Tube Station, so probably High Street Ken or somewhere like that. Can you come and meet him at uh, one o'clock or whatever on this uh, afternoon? And I turned up and it was myself and Gronya Maguire and Mark Thomas came. And uh, he turned up with three high-vis jackets. And one of them we've got here, it says trainee shoplifter on the back, right? So, in fact, there were two of these. There was myself and Gronya had high-vis jackets that said trainee shoplifter and Mark Thomas had one that said shoplifting instructor. <laughs> and the act of minor descent that we were going to do was to walk into Harrods <laughs> wearing, wearing these high-vis jackets and just to see how long we'd last. Now, we had two other people, I think, with us who had sort of camera phones, so they were videoing it kind of surreptitiously. They weren't obviously videoing us. So to anybody passing by, it was just these three people in high-vis jackets. Now, Mark Thomas, you know, recognised probably by a number of people in Harrods, but maybe not by everybody in Harrods, and myself and Gronje, certainly not. I mean, this was a few years ago as well. And um, so it was quite nerve-wracking. And then you're just like, well, actually, what's the worst that can happen? We get asked to leave Harrods. And, and Mark had sort of said to us beforehand, you know, I've, che- I've checked the legality of this. I've checked that we don't cross any lines, you know, and if anything does happen, I'll take the blame. This is, you know... She's like, OK, well, hopefully I won't be phoning my mum from a cell later. We'll, <laughs> we'll see how this goes. And it was, it was so funny. So we walked into Harrods, and I think we lasted about something like eight or ten minutes before a security guard. And they were very polite. And the thing with Harrods was that they, um, they have a dress code. So they had a very specific reason to ask us to leave because high-vis jackets aren't in their dress code, funnily <laughs> enough. So they were able to say, can you take the jackets off or you're going to have to leave? And, we just, and Mark was very polite to the guy because he was just doing his job. He said, oh, thank you very much. Yes, we'll take them off. We'll go now. Thank you very much. Goodbye. So there was never any confrontation. It wasn't about that. It was about just seeing how they would react. And, <laughs> but what was so much fun was just sort of the improvising as you walk around. So we walked into... I can't remember if this was Harrods or... Because we then went to Selfridges. 
to do the same thing. And I can't remember which shop it was, but we were in like this really expensive jewellery. And Mark, being the instructor, oh, and we had notepads and pens as well. <laughs> Bonnie, like, so it's like Mark was instructing us. We were ta- making notes, and he was like picking up like little bits of jewellery and just going, "Jewellery's great because you can slip it straight in your pocket." We're like straight in your pocket, <laughs> you? you know, just so vocal. People were sort of looking at us, not quite sure what they were looking at. And then in Selfridges, we were, we were in there for a bit longer. I think maybe even twenty minutes, half an hour before we were asked to leave because I think they didn't know quite what to do I think you could see people sort of behind counters having conversations about these people walking around and eventually someone just sort of came up and was like look you can't you can't do this <laughs> and Mark was well we're not we're just um, you know we prefer it if you didn't you know there was a reasoned <laughs> conversation and eventually we took them off but I think because Harrods had the dress code they had a very you know that's not in our dress code you need to leave but with selfies I think they're a bit more we don't know what to do about these they're not actually stealing anything they're just talking about stealing things in Ivy's jackets what a crazy way to spend an afternoon it's great what I find interesting about that um, we've got Mark on one of the other episodes talking about these pranks in, right. out there in the world is that that's a performance that's part of the show in a way yeah it's part of a stand-up show even though it's not because that will go on to become the part of his material that he'll perform yeah and in a way the Hundred Acts of Minor Descent is a, is a, an archive, it, you know, told mm. through his own words of what he's done. Yeah, I mean, in the actual show, in the end, of course, there was a hundred acts, so he couldn't show all of them. Yeah. Um, so I think it got a brief mention. This thing that yeah. we did, it wasn't one of the main yeah. kind of things that made the show. So it wasn't like it was, you know, it was all about the acts of con- descent there, and, and kind of opposite to what we were saying earlier, I suppose, in that there was a purpose to it in terms of the bigger picture, but it wasn't. You know, it wasn't filmed and then the whole thing put into the show. It was part of a bigger story. But what an adventure, what a, you know, way to spend your afternoon. And I remember just saying to, you know, old friends of mine, just like, you would never believe what I did this <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things we've talked about generations, and you talked about, work, um, you know, being invited to look at Linda's stuff by Warren and do the, yeah. the, the charity gigs for Loving Linda. Yeah. And you've talked about working with Mark, who, you'd, who you used to watch as a punter. Yeah. Um, if you because there will be people who you will be that person for them people who'll come after yeah. and you know if you donated something to the archive what do you think young comics might make of what you god my anxiety medication yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, no, but I mean if they saw yeah. your set list and things what do you do, oh what do you, do you think, think they'd make of yeah, me yeah yeah oh hugely disorganised probably um, I, that's interesting isn't it I don't know because I I mean, one of my worst nightmares is leaving my notebook on a bus or something because of what I think people might look at that and just go, what on earth was she thinking? Because because I write everything longhand and all the thoughts, it's like a stream of consciousness. So all the rubbish thoughts go in there as well and all the... You know, if anyone found that, I think I'd be mortified. Um, In terms of set lists, I hope people would have fun with that because... You know, it's like a strange puzzle, isn't it? You're like, what does she mean when she put yeah. horses on drugs? Or what does she mean when she put... Do you record to your shows? Just going back to that kind of linking... Yeah, I do, them. mainly for the purpose of, of learning from yeah. them. Mm-hmm. And also, so I've done two solo shows now. I'm working on my third. And both of them I've recorded just on my phone. So not a professional recording, but just because otherwise they disappear into the ether forever. And, you know, I've just felt like, for me, I wanted for my own archive if you like I just wanted to have a recording and maybe I want to revisit it one day maybe I want to go back and do that show again you know 10 years time or whatever um, 
but I don't I don't script my shows as such. So it's not like there's scripts of, of things that so it keeps going back to that thing about disappearance. About, yeah. about stand up is there in the wind and then it's gone. Yeah. I mean I know that sounds romantic, but it, it really is something that's just about the live performed moment. But that's the beauty of it, I think. And you and you can recreate that in a DVD or in a you know, so that it does it's it's not that you can't have that, but the the even when you watch a DVD, so when you're sitting at home and you're watching a DVD, you're laughing at it in a different way to the people in the audience, I think. Yes. Because they're also, they're, that's gone through an editing process, so they're already, they're privy to things you haven't seen. We, we started being able to have, the, we had the technological ability to record things live from, I think, the 1930s. So right. we have, um, you know, in existing in the world, uh, things like Max Miller being taped in 1938 in, yeah. in the, in the um, Hoban Empire. And listening to it now, you listen from the outside. Yeah. What you hear is an encounter between Max Miller and those sort of thousand people or however many were, 1,500 or whatever that was in the theatre yeah. in 1938. And so at times you laugh because it's, you, there's something funny about him. And at times you go, I don't know why you're laughing at that yeah. point. There's something there that well, doesn't translate. Everything in comedy is about a frame of reference, isn't it? So when you've got a group of people together in a room, you're assuming a frame of reference. And that can be stuff that is literally in that room, so the decor and the acoustics and all of those things, but also a shared experience of life at that time. So us, in 2017, listening to a recording in the 30s, well, we, we know what's in history books and bits that we've read, but we don't know what it's like to be a person in the 1930s listening to that. And what I think is interesting now is that that is happening more and more quickly. So with things like, you know, Brexit and Donald Trump being elected president... Suddenly, things that were recorded four years ago seem like an innocent time, yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And that I find really interesting. I did um, an episode of Mock the Week that was broadcast on the night of uh, the referendum. So it was broadcast at 10pm that night. So at the time of broadcast, we didn't know the results. Um, so we recorded it on the Tuesday, so that was pre-voting. The referendum was on the Thursday... It was broadcast on the Thursday night at 10pm and the results obviously were announced in the early hours the following morning. So between that broadcast at 10pm on the Thursday and the next morning, that show was completely out of date. Because even though the show was done in such a way that obviously we couldn't predict who was going to win and actually it was quite close by that point and so we made... Suddenly the world seemed like a different place. you know. And, and so when that episode of Mock the Week had its repeat on the Saturday or Sunday night whenever it gets repeated... Suddenly it felt like, well, it could have been five years old, you know. Or, uh, and so with news cycles the way they are now, the world seems to be so changing so rapidly that actually it is about being in that moment because your whole experience changes so quickly. It's interesting because we have quite a lot of material to do with the very early period of alternative comedy. Mm. And actually I made a mistake in an earlier episode because I said that Margaret Thatcher was elected within two weeks of the comedy store opening. It was slightly wrong. It was 17 days, I think, because it was... Right. She, I think she was elected on the 2nd of May, 79, and it opened on the 19th. But um, I think that's really significant that those two mm. things happened at almost exactly the same time because it would have been the same kind of thing. The world cha- changes and swivels on its axis and, so, axis, sorry, and suddenly you, you're yeah. in a different world. Yeah. What, what makes it even more interesting, stroke, scary, stroke, <laughs> complicated now, I think, is all, you've got that plus internet. Yes. Um, which means that, you know, at that time, people were getting their news from nightly news bulletins and the newspapers and satirists providing another view. 
and that was it, you know. Whereas now we've got the whole thing with fake news and mass media, and the nobody believes anybody anymore about anything. Yet there's just more information than we've ever had. And how do you? Where do you begin? And and to to be a satirist now is such a complicated affair. It seemed like a simpler time with, with when Thatcher was there because you had a clear target. Yeah. Um, you know that, and you were allowed to attack that target. Now people are so obsessed with offence and balance that it's very difficult to attack anybody. So as uh, unless you attack everybody, so as a satirist, you've got this these decisions to make that you've never had to make before about who your targets are going to be. And if you make A your target, then you have to counteract that with targeting B as well to keep that. You know, and suddenly there's this whole dynamic in comedy that we've never really had to worry about before and, and I don't know how it's going to pan out and, and it's very difficult when you know it's fine if you're doing your solo tour then you can be who you are and you can talk about what you want to talk about and you can make very clear what your political aims are for me I you know if, I, if I'm doing a comedy club on a Friday night a circuit gig I probably wouldn't bring up in that that I voted Remain because it's, it, those people haven't paid to see me. They've paid to go to a comedy club. Um, so I, I might do topical stuff, but it'd be much more generic topical stuff. However, if I'm doing a solo show under my name and people bought a ticket because they want to see me, then I might be a bit more specific about what my views are and not feel the need to be so balanced. If I'm working for the BBC, then that's a whole other game because then you have to be balanced. You can't because that's a public broadcaster and you have to represent all those views. And that's both, you know, I can totally understand why that has to be that way because people pay their licence fee and they expect the broadcaster to reflect their views, whatever they may be. But as a comic, that's quite frustrating because if you target one person, you have to target someone else. So we're in a really interesting place, but, yeah, quite complicated. And also in terms of the simpler times thing, I mean, you know, when I was growing up, things like the Morgan Wise Christmas special, the one where it got 28 million or whatever it was, mm. you know, everybody knew what Morgan Wise was. Yeah. I was talking to a group of students the other day, a group of students, furthermore, who were doing a project on alternative cabaret of the 80s, and I mentioned Stuart Lee, and literally none of them had heard of him, but they could all sing several Rihanna songs. Yeah. So my point is that you can't guarantee what people's base of knowledge is because culture is much more varied because people encounter things online. Yeah. People encounter things through listen again or watch again. It's not that water cooler thing of everybody gets together by the telly for the same thing. Absolutely. You can't you can't guarantee a reference anymore because there's so much to consume that you have to pick your bit that you consume. And it might be something different to the next person. I find that, you know, young people today, they're not watching TV. They're, they're watching YouTube or they're watching things online. And that's quite difficult because I'm a bit older, you know, to if I, like, tomorrow I'm doing a student gig and I find them terrifying because I have <laughs> absolutely no idea what your frames of reference are compared to mine, you know. And it can be something really simple, like if I do a bit of material about going to a friend's wedding, you go, these people are 18, they haven't been to a friend's wedding yet. So it's those simple things you can you can work out that they won't know that. But then other things, like you say, well, I just assume they'd know who Stuart Lee is, but of course maybe they don't. Yeah. Why would they? A comedy vehicle was on BBC Two. How many people under 18 watch BBC One, BBC Two? They yeah. don't. They watch things on YouTube. They watch things that are viral. They watch, they're consuming things in a way that I don't, I, that I don't and that I, I don't understand and that's not like saying 
that they're wrong. It's just, no, it's just I'm just older than them, yeah, <laughs> you quite. know. And it's just a different way of consuming. And, that, and that's as it should be, obviously, because I'm old enough to have a teenage person. It would be weird if they were into the same things I was into. Yes. You know, that's, that's how it should be in, in terms of... I mean, I remember with my parents, I used to watch Monty Python with them and things like that. But then, for me... I remember the breakthrough comedy-wise was Mary Whitehouse experience because that, for me, was the first thing that I loved and my parents hated. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, this is how it should be, right? Because every generation has their own thing. And now I look at some of these like YouTube comedians and I go, I don't understand, I don't get it. I don't get it. And I get, you know, you get all upset and go, well, how come they've got two million followers on it? Then you're like, well, actually, it's not for me. It's not for me and I'm not supposed to get it and that's the way it should be. Um, but then to try and write comedy to appeal to those people, well, I'm not the person. <laughs> you were talking about picking things out. I thought we might finish this episode by... We've looked at various different uh, bits of Linda's work here. Yeah. If you had to pick one item from the ones we've looked at today, what would, you, what would be your object? I'm going straight to the post-it notes. I find that it's, it's such a beautiful little thing. It's just little handwritten post-it notes. There's little stains on them. It's Linda's writing, and I feel like I've got a show in my hands there, and that's incredible to me. And it's not a script, it's not for anyone else to see, and that, so that would definitely be the thing that I think has really stuck out for me today. And it's such a scrappy little <laughs> bit of, of archive, but how beautiful. It's the, it's the difference between how humble it is as an object yeah. and, and how vital it would be to see that actual show perform. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you ever so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. So uh, the, this show, this podcast isn't just about what we say to you. It's also about you getting involved. And there are various different ways you can get involved. Get involved! If you'd like to uh, directly contribute to the podcast, you can um, look at our catalogue online. Uh, we've got a link to it on our social media and pick out a comedy object, email us about it or communicate with us about it on social media and we will talk about that object in a future episode. Please do come in to the Stand Up Comedy Archive. We're based in the University of Kent at the Templeman Library. Um, you could either just look at material for your personal enjoyment. And or your academic you, research. Academic, of course. Um, but if you want to record a short piece about the material that you've looked at, please do and send us the audio. And we'll use it in a future episode. And the stupidest way of getting involved is if, if you like our theme tune, record your own cover version of it, no matter how ridiculous. Send it to us, and if we like it, we'll use it in a future episode. OK, we'll see you again next time for A History of Comedy in Several Objects. A History of Comedy in Several Objects is devised and presented by Dr Oliver Double and Elspeth Miller for the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive, brought to you by the University of Kent. This is made possible by the University of Kent's Public Engagement Research Fund. Photography by Matt Wilson and editing and production by Matt Hoss.